0: Well, I don't know if you noticed it or not, but I think this morning we have the next generation uh, worship team helping us to lead a worship. Yeah, let's give them a hand. (laughs) Jason, I was just—I was just. Once you start, you—you have to say something, right? But I was sitting there thinking, what what do I say? Like, how can his Jason's like twice as old or older than everyone on the platform? That is awesome. So. I've got some other things. I better not say it. I'll get in trouble with you. (laughs) Well, hey, this is exciting. Last Sunday, we really drew a line in the sand at Christ Fellowship. Last Sunday evening was uh, a bit of a watershed moment uh, for us at this church. It was a very special evening as we began the process of unpacking the strategic plan that will mark a new chapter in the life of our church family. Most of you know that for almost two years, men and women on the strategic planning team met to pray and talk and pray some more and talk some more and strategize about how we would best move into the future as a church family. I think it would be good for those of you who were not here last week if you could see the men and women who are on that planning team. So if you uh, assisted on the planning team, would you stand for a moment? Uh, to be recognized. None of them are here. Okay, we've got Chris, Steve, and Beth, and Karen way in the back. There are several more, and it's a Memorial Day weekend. Yes, you can give them a hand. This is a group that worked really, really hard. I, I, I wish you could see the the stacks and stacks of notebooks and uh, the hours and hours of work, not only on Monday evenings, but uh, throughout the week as, as a host of things were accomplished. Now, I also want to uh, recognize both Chris Veldman, who stood a moment ago, and Keith Cox, who uh, co-chaired the strategic planning team, and they kept us on the right course, and they did a great job. Also, uh, B.J. Edwards, who's not able to be with us today, I want to thank him for the fine job that he did last week in beginning the process of unpacking that strategic plan and sharing the nuts and the bolts of that plan. Now, my task last week was to begin the process where we, we cast the vision for what discipleship can look like and should look like at Christ's fellowship. It's what I like to refer to as envisioning a culture of discipleship. I must say that whenever you uh, begin to talk about the word culture, a culture does not uh, take place overnight, does it? A culture takes time to develop. And so as we finished our our time last week and I, I came on Monday to the church, I had a few people approach me. And they shared a really, really good idea. They said, Pastor, it it might be a good idea to basically take those comments from the meeting last week, not only for those who didn't have a chance to be there, but also as a, a refresher of what discipleship can look like and should look like at Christ Fellowship. And so this morning, I do want to continue to develop and expand the idea of envisioning a culture of discipleship. And I want to anchor those thoughts in a crucial scripture that is probably the most important discipleship passage in all of sacred scripture. And so I would, first of all, have you guess where we're going to go. I'm going to give you a moment to guess where we might go, and I'll give you the answer now as I would invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And I hope as we develop a theological culture, a biblical culture at Christ Fellowship, that when I say Matthew chapter 28, that two words should automatically pop into your mind. I hope that that dozens of you thought of the two words, great commission. Because indeed, at the end of chapter 28, that is what we are going to take uh, our time to discuss this morning. So would you stand with me as we read this great passage together beginning in verse 18. Matthew chapter 28 verse 18. And Jesus came to them and he said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we uh, thank you uh, for last week. We thank you for a, a good kickoff, uh, an inauguration of sorts where we uh, begin to uh, participate in the reality of this strategic plan we know at the heart of the plan is a commitment to make disciples of all nations as your son commanded his disciples as your son commanded each of us and now as we uh, do an overview of what it means to be a disciple god i pray that you would challenge us i pray that you would convict us uh, lord as the The positive feedback that we received last week, I pray that that feedback would continue, that there is much to be challenged about, there is much to be convicted about, and the decisions would be made today that would uh, be decisions that would have eternal, life-changing implications. God, we uh, believe it is so important to hold your word as our highest authority, and so as we open your word today, uh, may your spirit be our teacher May we uh, listen carefully. May we listen carefully to the word of God and may we respond in kind. First, in your son's worthy name we pray. Amen. Of course, when you think of Matthew chapter 28, you should automatically think Great Commission. And indeed it is a Great Commission. I want to take a few moments to make some introductory comments about that Great Commission. First of all, I want you to see that in this passage, there is a command to make disciples. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. But the notion of making disciples is a command and indeed should be at the very center of not only Christ's fellowship and our purposes. This should be the center of every church everywhere all around the world the commitment to make disciples i don't know what kind of image that you have in your mind when you think about a disciple but the word disciple actually means a follower a follower of the lord jesus christ you know when i began at christ fellowship as your pastor over 3 years ago uh, one of the things that we began to do is to put notes. In fact, I see Katie has her, her notes opened. And are those all filled out already? No, not quite. Uh, we're not done yet. But you'll see on your notes a series of blanks. And you can you can fill in the blanks. Well, I remember when I began the process of, of putting those notes together. On my laptop, I write the name of the sermon. And then after the sermon, I write student Notes. I never had a conversation with Carmel about this. I never had a conversation with Jan or any of the members of the staff. But I'm sure some people somewhere along the way wondered student notes. Like, whoa, what is this, a college class? Is this a a university or what's the deal? Well, the reason I call what you have before you this morning as student notes is because if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a student you're a disciple. You are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. To be a disciple literally means that you are a learner. You're a learner. If, you, if you're here this morning and say, I'm done learning, I'm done learning, then discipleship to you will be a totally foreign concept. And so whether you're four years old or 40 years of age or 90 years of age, wherever you are in the age spectrum, you should always be learning more and more and more. I know I've shared a story in times past about a conference I went to. It was a conference that, uh, uh, where we learned about small group ministry. And I went to this conference as a young pastor, very excited to learn about what successful small small group ministry looked like. And I remember having this really profound experience. As I was seated in this conference, I looked a few rows ahead of me, and there was Dr. Willard Aldrich, one of my former professors from Multnomah University. And I remember my thought, I thought, Dr. Aldrich has got to be, at least in his early 80s. And that's being really nice. He, he was an older gentleman. And I remember having the thought, I wonder what he's doing here. Because I, I had this idea in my mind. It was a false idea that he knew all there was to know about small group ministry. That would be like seeing a, a pastor or a Christian worker or a missionary at a theology conference and saying to yourself, I wonder what he's doing here. Because he's got it all figured out. Well, Whether you're 4 or 40 or 90 years of age, you should always have the mindset, I can learn something new. And that's what Dr. Willard taught me that day. Here was a man, a veteran of the Christian faith, a man who had taught theology all of his adult life. And he shows up with a bunch of young whippersnappers like me to learn more. To be a more effective witness, to be a more productive disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, time and time again in the New Testament, calls his disciples to follow him. If you're here this morning and you say that I'm unwilling to follow Jesus Christ, which is a synonym for obey and trust then discipleship, again, will be a foreign notion for you. By definition, disciples believe Jesus. They obey Jesus. They trust Jesus. They don't go to His Word and pick and choose what they like. I received an email from a gentleman just this morning who Picks and chooses what he likes from God's word. That is a foreign concept for a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see, secondly, the sphere of discipleship. The sphere of discipleship. And notice that Jesus says, we are to make disciples of whom? Of all nations. And when you hear all nations, don't think Argentina, Don't think Canada, don't think Australia, don't think Poland, don't think Germany, because that is not the original word that we get the word nations from. The word is the Greek word ethne. And it describes not a a geographical location, rather Jesus tells his disciples and all of his followers, the discipleship is for every ethne, that is to say every people group. You go to some countries in the the Mideast, and you'll find that there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of people groups with different heart languages in the same area. That's why we don't focus on the, the country in particular, but the people group, the ethne. And Jesus said, no one is left out. Why? Because the book of Ephesians very clearly tells us that in eternity past, God the Father chose some to be holy and blameless in his sight. And here's the guarantee that we have. Those of us who are excited about missions work. And I hope if you're a disciple of Jesus, when you think of the word missions, when you think of the word foreign missions, when you think of the notion of going to the nations, I hope you get very excited I hope you get really pumped up. Here's the guarantee. There will be representatives from every ethne in heaven there will be representatives from every ethne in heaven. In other words, there will be representatives from every tribe and nation and people group one day in heaven because God the Father has chosen some. He has not chosen all, but he has chosen some and he's passed over the others. Notice number three. Here we come to the essence, the very essence of discipleship. And we see it here. As it unfolds in verse nineteen, go therefore, Jesus says, and make disciples of every ethne, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. And so we see that at the very heart of discipleship is baptizing disciples. That's why we make a big deal about filling up the tank. When someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the first things that we want to do is get them in the waters of baptism so they can make a, a public profession of their faith. Notice the second essence of discipleship, and that is teaching them, teaching disciples. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But finally, I want you to see that there is a promise. It is a, it is a magnanimous promise that Jesus makes his disciples here, where he has promised to be with his people. He has promised to be with his disciples until the end of the age. And so we are called to this pursuit, namely the the pursuit of personal discipleship. And Jesus says, as you are a disciple, and as you disciple every ethne, as you disciple the nations, he says, I will be with you. And those are important words for many of you because some of you say something like this. Because you're going to hear this challenge here in about 25 minutes. That if you're a disciple, by definition, you should be discipling someone. So, uh-oh, I hear the heat. It's beginning to get turned up. He just, he just tipped his hand, right? Well, here's what I hear often. I, I, I don't know if I could do that. I, I, I don't know if I have enough answers. I don't know if I know enough about the Bible to disciple someone else. But by definition, if you're a disciple... Your heart cry as a follower of Jesus is to, in some way, be discipling someone else. And so with the command to make disciples etched on to our our minds and on our hearts, I want to share with you the mission and the vision that the strategic planning team crafted. The mission, first of all. The mission of Christ Fellowship is to help people become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a word that's missing in the mission. And you can feel free to yell it out. What's the word that's missing? I heard it whispered. Disciples. You say, where is the, the idea of discipleship? Well, it's right there. The mission of Christ Fellowship is to help people become fully devoted followers. That is to say, fully devoted disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice now the vision. The vision is quite a mouthful. The vision is to be a high commitment, high grace uh, family of Christ followers who strive to be gospel-driven or to live gospel-driven and God-centered lives, equipped to reach our community and the nations with the saving message of the gospel. Aubrey Malfors says it this way. Both the mission and the vision address the direction of the ship. Both the mission and the vision address the direction of the ship. The mission states the direction. That is, discipleship is the direction we are aiming for. And the vision supplies a picture of that discipleship. And so with that in mind, I want to take our remaining time to to cast this vision for what a culture of discipleship could look like. I need to tell you that casting the vision for a culture of discipleship is is a long process. We're going to look at the tip of the iceberg this morning and consider this a bit of an overview. Such a culture, however... A culture of discipleship will include three very important pillars. These are pillars that, just for fun, I would like to be able to come up to any one of you in the coming weeks or months and say, "Uh, Jerry, could you tell me the three pillars of discipleship? And without batting an eye, that person would say, oh, pastor, that's easy. The three pillars of discipleship are conviction, character, and competency conviction character and competency when i say conviction i speak of theological conviction you say pastor i'm i'm uncomfortable learning about theology can i say something from my heart not one disciple of the lord jesus christ should be uncomfortable learning About theology, because what is theology? Theology is the study of Almighty God. And I strive to love God, obey God, serve God, and please God with every fiber of my being. And so we commit ourselves to developing our theological conviction. Secondly, in the area of character, when we speak of character, we refer to personal godliness. Some of you over the years may have known someone who had strong theological convictions, but his or her character was very suspicious. And that's what the Bible refers to as a, as a hypocrite. Someone who has great theology but doesn't have a life to back it up. We are striving at Christ Fellowship to develop disciples who have theological conviction and a character that is godly that matches that conviction. Finally, in the area of competency, we're referring here to a set of skills and abilities. Every disciple has been given at least one spiritual gift. Some of you have several spiritual gifts. And we are called as disciples of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, to grow in our competency. And so if teaching is your gift, we grow as a teacher. If preaching is your gift, you grow as a preacher. If evangelism or administration or helps or mercy is your gift, you, you learn more about those gifts. You study, you learn, you, you put your, your feet on the concrete, You get your hands dirty, so to speak, and begin to utilize those gifts. Well, this morning, I'd like to walk through these three pillars and give you what I would consider to be a a vision of what these three pillars can look like at our church. Let's begin with the pillar of conviction, the pillar of conviction. Now, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but as I was studying this week, I thought about how many years Doreen and I have been in full-time ministry. So Jason, I have nothing to tease you about because now I've been in ministry along with my wife for almost 25 years. That's a long time. And I can tell you what the typical objection is to this first pillar, the pillar of conviction. And over the last 25 years, these are some of the things that I hear about this pillar. Here's one thing. Pastor, the last thing we need at this church is more knowledge. We don't need any more knowledge. Or, Pastor, the last thing we need at this church is more learning. After all, this is not the academy. This is not the university. This is not a seminary. Pastor, the last thing we need at this church is more training. We've had it. We want something practical. We want something relevant. Would you do something with me and turn to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3? Because I want to begin by way of introduction as I introduce the first pillar of conviction to to have us look at God's word and see how very important the pillar of conviction really is. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, would you read with me beginning in verse 14? So here Paul the Apostle is writing to Timothy, a a young pastor, and he instructs Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Now would you hold your finger in 2 Timothy and and turn back to the book of Colossians because the Apostle Paul has more to offer in this respect. In Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, Paul the Apostle continues to explain how very important it is to develop one's theological convictions. Verse 9 of chapter 1. He says, And so from the day we heard... May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, in Second Timothy chapter 3 and Colossians chapter 1, I want to have you notice the emphasis on several words. And we've put these words on the screen for you. They are emphasizing learning. And believing and knowledge and understanding and implicit in these verses is the notion of growth. And finally, the notion of training. You see, instead of hearing comments that I have over the last 25 years that that reflect an attitude of not wanting to learn more, that reflect an attitude of, listen, less classes, less training What I envision for Christ's Fellowship in the days ahead is we love that class. We love to learn. We love theology. Because when you love to learn and you love to come to class and you love theology, what that does is it builds your what? It builds your theological conviction. It builds your theological conviction. If we, like many churches across the nation... If we discard theological education, you do know that many churches are doing this now, is children no longer have Sunday school, adults no longer have theological education. It's all relegated either either to the morning worship service or the small group. I'm convinced that if we cast aside theological education, uh, we will reap the consequences that we don't even want to think about the implications of the, the biblical illiteracy that will result. I believe we're already seeing and reaping the consequences of a, a biblically illiterate church, especially in America. And so with that in mind, I want to provide for you, in the area of conviction, four building blocks of conviction. What does this conviction look like? First, the building block of conviction begins like this, is we need to learn to think Theologically, I know it sounds a little bit threatening. It might sound like it's going to involve work. But if we're to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must learn to think theologically. Here's the way that looks practically. When you go to a movie, you think theologically. When you read a book, you think theologically. When I see a bumper sticker on a car, I think Theologically, I remember just a few weeks ago, uh, my daughter Abby and my son Nathan and I uh, went on that amazing hike, uh, thanks to Scott Meyer, Karen, uh, the Oyster Dome, and I know the Myers have been there too. Wow, what an adventure! We even got lost, made it more of an adventure. My fault. Well, I remember seeing a sign. This is why my kids know that I think theologically about everything. We saw a sign, it was about that big, and it said, Warning, there are uh, spots along the trail that may be inflicted with erosion. Erosion. I remember taking a picture of it, because, I, and I forgot to use it for today. I apologize, but I remember thinking, that's what's happening in the church. We have cast aside theological education, and so what's happening? Erosion. Our paths are becoming more narrow, and the precipice is on the right and it's on the left, and Christians, people who name the name of Jesus Christ, are falling into error. I'm going to make a dangerous move and criticize a book at this point. (laughs) Some of you woke up. Wow. (laughs) This is a book. It's it's not much in vogue anymore, but it was several years ago, and this is going to be one that will probably merit a few conversations, so I'm prepared to do that. But the book was a book that sold, was on the bestseller list. It was an unbelievable success. The book is called The Shack. And Christians by the drove were reading The Shack. I remember a denominational leader is the one who recommended The Shack to me. I'm convinced that the reason for the success of The Shack is that the church... Is unprepared to fight theological error. John MacArthur says it this way the evangelical church no longer has the ability to fight error because it doesn't know the truth. And so uh, you could you could ask Jereen, she knows how frustrated I got during those days is I would I would go to Starbucks in Le Grand and I would have my copy of the shack, and I remember one lady came up to me and she said, Oh, you're reading the shack. What a wonderful book. I'm so happy to see you're doing that. I said, no, I'm writing a 40 page critique. (laughs) Well, why would you do that? It's one of the best books I've ever read. I said, my friend, this book is filled with theological air, literally filled with theological air. And so as we make a commitment to develop theological conviction, we must begin to learn to think with theological accuracy. Number two, if we are to develop our our theological conviction, we must develop a biblical theological framework. There are many men this morning who uh, took the class in Iron Man where we studied for two years almost 1,000 pages of systematic theology by Dr. Wayne Grudem. Here's what Grudem says. He says, in this book, he forgot to say this rather big book that you could use as a door jam. In this book, the goal is to enable Christians to put into their theological jigsaw puzzle as many pieces with as much accuracy as possible and to encourage Christians to go on putting in more and more correct pieces for the rest of their lives. One of my best friends in the world came to... A church that I pastored several years ago and I remember after we became pretty good friends he he came to me and he said I, I, I'm really sorry but I'm just not getting it and nothing that we're hearing about makes any sense and so I continued to encourage my friend and knew that that he would get it eventually well one day and it was literally a day where everything clicked in and he came back to me, and he has come back to me. I, I don't have enough fingers and toes to tell you how many times he has come back and said, now I'm able to put the puzzle pieces together. I see the, the intertwining of Bible verses and theology and biblical theology and the flow of redemptive history now It all is beginning to make sense. That's why we need to be committed to developing a biblical theological framework. Number three, if we are to develop theological conviction, we must develop an insatiable appetite for theology. And when I say theology, just automatically think God. If I say, how many of you love theology? What you should think to yourself is, how many of you love theology? God. That's why if if you say to someone, I'm I'm learning about theology, and the person says, I'm not really interested in theology, say, very kindly, you're not interested in God? Because theology, you see, is the study of God. And so we develop an insatiable appetite for studying theology, which is to know the God of the Bible. Jesus said it this way, and we will get there probably won't be for a long time when we get to john chapter 17 he says and this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent a very very important verse in john chapter 17 verse 3 because he says the essence of eternal life is to know to know in the head and know in the heart the living god to have a relationship with him through jesus finally Developing theological conviction means that we worship God with every fiber of our being. St. Clair Ferguson puts it this way, The goal of theology is the worship of God. The posture of theology is on one's knees. The mode of theology is repentance. If you're here this morning and you just love to learn for the sake of learning... That's not true theological pursuit. That's just, that's just academia for another place and another time. But to worship God with every fiber of our being means that we're going after God. We're learning about Him. We're loving Him. We're serving Him. We worship Him with every fiber of our being. That is theological conviction. And that just scratches the surface. Let's move to the second pillar, the pillar of character the pillar of character, which involves personal godliness. I want to share five building blocks of character. The first one will take a bit to develop because it's very important. The first building block of godly character is godliness. Godliness. And many character qualities become evident in one's life as a disciple, but One that that rises to the surface above all others is a commitment to growing in godliness. You say, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a, a godly young man or a godly young woman? What does it mean to be a godly adult, a godly man or a godly woman? Well, there are so many things on the word of God. Let me give you just a few things. First of all, godly people have a holy fear of God. They have a holy fear of God. You see, a godly person would be scared to death to say, God's rad, he's my dad. That might sound really neat, and it might work with a group of friends, but we don't talk about how God's rad, he's my dad. We refer to God as holy, holy, holy. He is the majestic God. God who ordains everything that comes to pass. Proverbs 1 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. You remember in Genesis chapter 39, we talked for a bit about this in Veritas this morning, that Joseph ran into a problem with Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife was was in a position where she was getting she wanted joseph to to be in this compromised position and to commit sexual sin I love what Joseph says in genesis thirty nine verse nine he says, "How can I do this great wickedness and sin against god he didn't say well, maybe your husband will find out. He didn't say, maybe my parents will find out. He didn't say, well, it might cost me my job. No, those things were important to Joseph, but he said, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against a holy God? And so a godly person has a holy fear of God. Another thing that we talked about last week is that a, is that a godly person has an intense hatred of sin. An intense hatred of sin. I find it distressing that in churches all around the world, there's very little talk about sin, much less having an intense hatred of it. But James chapter 4 says it very clearly. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We are called to have a holy and an intense hatred of sin. Moreover, a godly person is committed As you might imagine, to a lifestyle of holiness and purity. In Romans chapter 13, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh To gratify its desires. Do you know that for the most part, the entertainment industry, and I speak of television and movies and magazines, that much of that industry is committed to doing the exact opposite of what Paul the Apostle instructs here? Instead of fleeing from immorality, we are encouraged to embrace immorality. Instead of fleeing from sexual sin, we are encouraged to participate in sexual sin. Instead of of running away from vulgar language, we are encouraged to use vulgar language ourselves. But here we see that a godly person has a life that is committed to holiness and purity. Know also that a godly person has a passionate love for God, as as we already indicated. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. It says, know therefore, and I love this, know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. We see this person not only has a passion and a love for God, but a heart that seeks after God. As 2 Chronicles 7 verse 14 says, for if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. I would challenge you to insert the United States of America in verse 14 and see what consequences result. Because collectively as a nation, we have not turned to the face of God. We have turned away from God. We have we have turned toward wickedness, and the Bible expressly says that he will not hear our prayers, that he will not forgive our sin, that he will not heal our land. Positively, Psalm 119, verse 2 said, Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Young people, I hope that your passion today and as you move into the future would be Obeying God is cool. Obeying God will bring me the most pleasure and the most satisfaction that anyone could ever have in the world. It's like John Piper says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I heard John Piper once talking about Madonna. Madonna, she's the one who's experienced more pleasure than all of us put together, right? All the things that she's done and participated in, she's the ultimate hedonist. John Piper said, you have no idea what hedonism is. Why? Because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So to the degree that I fail to find my satisfaction in God, to that degree, I I am miserable. I am miserable. Notice also that a godly person has a heart that worships God. Exodus 15 11 says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Psalm thirty-six, eight says, they feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from your river of delights. Jonathan Edwards said something once. I love to quote him at this point. I just love to quote him. <laughs> he said something like this. There is no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. And you're like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Think about it. You have the, 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 the fountain pictured in your mind. There's no deficiency in a fountain that overflows. Why? Because fountains, help me, overflow. Fountains overflow. Now read Psalm 36.8. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink like a fountain. Drink from your river of delights. And so as you, as you come to the table to participate, to feast on God... It's a never-ending feast. The pleasure never reaches an ending point. It goes on and on and on. So our hearts continue to worship more and more and more. I challenge any hedonist to find that kind of pleasure in anything. Money, sex, pleasure of the world, materialism. Why? Because it all reaches an apex at a certain point and you need to move on to something else with our relationship with God through Jesus Christ it gets better and better and better as we drink from his river of delights I want you to see that a godly person is also committed to a life of prayer he's committed to a life of prayer Philippians 4 says do not be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication Let your requests be made known to God. A godly person has a deep reverence for God. A godly person has a love for other people. We not only love God on the vertical level, we love people horizontally. Moreover, a godly person has a love for the word of God. You say, reading is not my thing. I've been trying to think of a way to say this patiently and graciously and kindly reading's not my thing reading needs to become your thing right not quantity necessarily right quality where you wake up in the morning and can't wait to read a chapter in god's word or a series of chapters in god's word Reading God's word, a love for the word of God. The psalmist says, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. I shall walk about in a wide place for I've sought out your precepts. The NIV puts it this way. I will walk about in freedom for I've sought out your precepts. If you're here this morning, you've cast aside the word of God for the sake of freedom. You have no idea what liberty is all about because the only way to be truly free is, is to be free in a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. A godly person not only has a love for the word of God, a a godly person lives a life according to the word of God. Psalm 37.1 says, The law of God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. Finally, I want you to see, as we look, by the way, at the first quality of this component or this pillar of character is that a godly man or a godly woman has a willingness to fight a willingness to fight you say that i don't know if i like the words the, the, the the ring of that well what i mean is this is if you're a godly person you are willing to fight tooth and nail for the truth you are willing to fight for the family. You are willing to fight for Christ-centered values. You are willing to fight for the gospel. You are willing to fight for reformation and revival. You are willing to fight for the truth, and you are willing to fight for purity. You are willing to fight for the rights of the unborn, You are willing to fight for integrity, for accountability, for unity, for humility, for devotion. You will fight to the glory of God. Amen? So a person who is committed to godly character must be a godly man or a godly woman. Secondly, a person who has godly character is a person who is committed to integrity who is committed to integrity. A person of integrity, then, is committed to several ideals. First, they guard themselves from deceptive speech. That means a man or a woman of integrity refuses to tell lies. A man or a woman of integrity refuses to tell a half-truth. A man or a woman of integrity doesn't do as my friend did, who sold a boat to some Native Americans that had no ribbing under the boat. And as we drove away, he started laughing. I said, why are you laughing? He says, because they just bought that crazy boat. When they put it in the water, it's going to sink. <laughs> I'm about 12 years old. I didn't think it was very funny. In fact, I thought it was absolutely treasonous. I thought, it was, I thought it was a sinful thing to do to sell a product to a person who had hard-earned money knowing that that boat was going to sink. When they dropped it in the water. Proverbs 11.3 says. The integrity of the upright guides them. But the crookedness. Of the treacherous. Destroys them. You might be interested to know. That my friend. Who sold that. Wayward boat. Ended up serving a life sentence. In the penitentiary. And he died just a few years ago. A man of integrity. A woman of integrity. Refuses to compromise divine standards. They say what they mean, and they mean what they say. They are committed to fleeing from temptation. Paul says in Second Timothy 2, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. Young people, we're called to flee sexual immorality. And I love the way the verb is written in 1 Corinthians. It's it's a present tense imperative. And here's what you say, that means nothing to me. Here's what it means. It means you run with all your might away from sexual sin. You run as fast as you can and you never look back. And you do it every day. So young ladies, when that young man propositions you or wants you to use your body in a way that doesn't please the living God, the Word of God says this, you are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Head for the hills like the roadrunner and never look back. And it would be really cool if you looked back and said to that guy, beep beep, right? I get in trouble when I go outside the notes. (laughs) Number three, people with godly character are... Demonstrating godliness, they are men and women of integrity. Third, they are people of humility. You see, disciples strive for humility in every endeavor. Humility comes as a result of a, of a soft heart that has been in the presence of God. A humble person trembles at the thought of being used by God. And genuine humility always results... In a delight and a love for serving people. Here shortly as we move forward with the strategic plan, we're going to be calling on you. We are going to be looking for 100% participation. If you have a, a heart that's soft and humble, guess what? You're going to be ready to serve. If your heart is hard and crusty, you're going to complain about the plan. You're going to complain because it doesn't look right to you. It doesn't feel right to you. And the word of God is calling his people to have soft hearts that are humble hearts that say, listen, to the pastors and the elders, I am ready to roll up my sleeves and I am ready to teach. I am ready to equip. I am ready to disciple. I am ready to make Kool-Aid and make cookies. I am ready to get in the community. I'm willing to do whatever I need to do with the gifts that God has given me all to the glory of God. Does that sound fun? Oh, can you imagine? Good pastor friend of mine told me just last week. He said, Dave. You know, in ministry, that there is nothing more exciting than seeing a follower of Jesus Christ obey Jesus and love Jesus and worship Jesus and serve Jesus. I mean, he didn't say it, but it's like he was looking at me like, can I get an amen? I'm like, we're in a public place. Amen, right? (laughs) This is cool. But then he went on to say, but there's nothing more devastating than to see the opposite than to see betrayal and hard heartedness and bitterness and a complaining spirit. Let us move forward as men and women of God who have soft hearts that are humble hearts ready to serve God and serve people. Number four. This godly character involves perseverance and persistence for growing disciples will always show a measure of perseverance and persistence. They refuse to give up when the times get tough. They understand that tumultuous times produce perseverance. They persist in the face of adversity and criticism. So says James chapter 1. Finally, a person who is committed to this kind of character that we're referring to is committed to walking according to the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, maturing disciples make that commitment right at the start. They commit to walking by the Spirit so they don't gratify the desires of the flesh. And the result, according to Galatians chapter 5, is this. For the man or the woman who walks by the Spirit, they are filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. It's an unbelievable thing. And so we've seen two of the pillars, have we not? We've seen that the disciples, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, have conviction. Secondly, they have character that's a godly character. I want to close by looking with you at this third pillar. And it's the pillar of competency. And I'll do it fairly quickly. This, again, is a series of, it's a skill set of skills and abilities that we have as God's people. Here are a few building blocks of this kind of competency. One is you have determined your governing values. Now, you know that as a church family, BJ walked us through this last week, that we have 10 guiding values. I would submit to you that a disciple ought to take time at some point in his or her Christian life to get away for part of a day or perhaps a whole day and Get down and dirty and get your Bible out and ask God, what are my governing values? How do my values relate to God, the church, my family, hard work, excellence, and the list goes on and on. So disciples are determined to live according to governing values. Number two, here's one that may threaten some of you, is a disciple lives according to a personal mission statement. See, our church family has a a corporate mission statement that is to help people become followers of Jesus Christ, disciples of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to think about the prospect of writing a personal life mission statement. It's an unbelievable thing that we can talk more of in the days ahead. Number three. A disciple who's developing in the area of competency is fueled by lifelong learning. You see, maturing disciples should have a passion for lifelong learning. Too many followers of Jesus forfeit any influence they may wish to wield when they cease to sharpen the sword of learning. Now, learning for you might look different than learning for someone else. Learn for you might mean you read a chapter in the Bible in the morning and you read three good Christian books this year. That might be great for you. For someone else, they might pour over the Word of God. They might read the Word of God three times a year. They might read a, a dozen Christian books or 20 or 30 Christian books. So long as we are pursuing our great God together, that we're fueled by lifelong learning. Number four, and here's where the rubber meets the road, is the disciple is engaged in ministry and utilizing his or her spiritual gifts. One of my dreams and the dream of the strategic planning team and the future elder council is this. If someone were to come up to you in the month of October and say, what's your ministry? You could say, oh, I'm glad you asked. My ministry is? I do This every Sunday morning. I do this on Wednesday night. I do this in the community. Whatever it is, something on this campus or something in the community, you call that your ministry. And then finally, in closing, a disciple who's growing in his or her competency is able to communicate the gospel clearly. I have to say, I must confess, this is the one I received the most feedback on. It was all positive feedback, but many people said, Whew, I'm challenged in this area. This is a struggle for me. As I, as I challenged the group last week with a man I know who would wander the jungles of Cambodia. And one day he ran across a, an individual who was barely wearing any clothes. I mean, he, he made a mountain man look like a man from Manhattan, right? I mean, he was an out there person in the bush. And this missionary simply asks this tribesman one question Do you know the God of the universe? And my question last week, and I posed the same question this week, is this How many of you, let's try it, raise your hand if you can do this. How many of you could go up to someone and just say, Do you know the God of the universe? How many could do that? That's a bigger group than last week. Last week scared me. We're growing together, right? It's as simple as saying, Do you know the God of the universe? And my challenge was this: What's the worst thing that could happen in America? I think the worst thing that could happen is you might get punched in the nose, right? Little ice, big slab of meat, right? What's the worst thing that could happen? Let's get in the habit of just telling people about Jesus, uh, taking taking a, a leap, if you will, and just asking people where they stand with the God of the universe. I think one of the biggest hindrances of evangelism is a closed mouth and trust that God will give us as a church family the ability in the days ahead to open our mouths and to proclaim the gospel. Well, as we talk about this discipleship dream, really the dream is to develop a culture of discipleship, a culture of discipleship and I read a book many years ago that really summed up biblical discipleship, and the author sets forth five qualities, and we'll close with those qualities. He says that disciples obey Jesus. He says that disciples confess their sins to Jesus. That is, they're repentant. Disciples submit to Jesus. Disciples are committed to Jesus. Disciples persevere With Jesus. They have conviction, they have character, and they have competency. And ultimately, the challenge is this if you're a disciple, by definition, disciples make other disciples. It doesn't have to be in the, in some kind of a, 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 a program that's developed by the church. It's a matter of, of introducing someone to Jesus and helping that person become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And we will help you along the way as we press forward into the future. But I would like to do this with you as we close in a word of prayer. To imagine... A growing family of Christ followers right here in Everson who are growing in their theological conviction daily, who are growing in their personal character. That is, they're growing as men and women of God, and they're developing a set of skills and becoming more and more competent to the glory of God. Can you imagine what would happen in this community if we committed to doing Just that. I can guarantee you that people in the community will be scratching their heads going, what's going on at the church across from the gas station? We heard things about that church. My response would be something like this. I'm sure you did. But guess what? That was last year. That was five years ago. That was 20 years ago. We're headed to the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for the challenge today uh, through uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as he uh, gave that final challenge to the disciples, to be disciples, to make disciples, to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all that Christ commanded. Thank you, Jesus, that you charged us with uh, discipleship, but you also promised that you would be with us until the end of the age. God, I pray as we press into the future that you would help us individually and corporately to be men and women, boys and girls of strong theological conviction, of godly character, and men and women and boys and girls who are competent to serve here in the church family, and also out in the community, in the marketplace of ideas. We look forward to the day when we can challenge people to look in the rearview mirror. That could happen tomorrow. God, the things in the past are in the past. And now we look forward to the future. And the future begins now. God, I ask that you would be uh, regenerating someone today. And someone in the days ahead that... Uh, they would begin a, a personal relationship with you through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are excited. We're excited for all that you will accomplish in this place, in our community, and all around the world as we have a passion to see every ethne touched with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.